Well, good day. Uh, uh, welcome from California. Uh, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do an episode on the road, uh, but I'm up pretty early. It's about 6.07 a.m., uh, which is about 9 o'clock time on the East Coast. I tend to stick somewhat within my sleeping schedule, regardless of uh, my travel within reason. If it's three hours, I'll just get up earlier, generally. But I get up early in Pennsylvania, too, so I'm not sure that's entirely uh, the case. But nonetheless, it's uh, early here in California. I'm in the Sacramento area. Uh, the road trip has been uh, amazing, eye-opening, um, great relationally. Uh, I love to see places, and I like to visit spots, of course, uh, typical tourist stuff. Although I've had to cut some of that out because of weather and encroaching danger like blizzards and ice and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but seeing people, uh, friends and family, uh, has been uh, incredibly enriching. And it's so much easier for me to visit people than for people to come with their families uh, to Pennsylvania. Not that they don't come by occasionally, but it's, it's a lot less difficult for me for so many reasons uh, to see people on their own turf. And uh, I've just had a, a wonderful experience so far. Today is about the halfway point. I have about uh, 16 more days to go. I'm 16 days in. I thought I'd be camping a bit more, uh, but until recently, the weather hasn't been great. It's been very cold, of course, through the north, uh, the north, the northern passage, uh, Minneapolis, uh, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Minneapolis, uh, Montana, uh, Spokane, Washington, and Portland. We're all on the chilly side. And now here in Sacramento, it's it's rather uh, rather hot. Uh, well, at least it was hot a couple of days ago. It's not so. Uh, yesterday was really nice. Yesterday was just a perfect day. It was a little, a little bit on the cool side, but the sun was bright. Uh, so, what else is going on? It's been a great trip. Um, once in a lifetime. I don't plan to do this again anytime soon. Uh, podcasts are really saving me. Uh, on the road, I can only listen to so much music very conscious of how long a song usually lasts and it's about four to five minutes and then I start calibrating that was four minutes and now I only have 10 more hours of driving to do <laughs> drive me a bit crazy I have found podcasts to be better because they're not framed that way they go on for an hour or hour and a half and I just kind of lose my um, sense of time and I enter into to a conversation which I don't participate in uh, in terms of verbally but I listen and I think podcasts have made me a better listener. I try to remember when I'm with people to treat it somewhat like it's a, an opportunity to listen, like a podcast is to gain information, gain insight. And I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do a podcast from the road, uh, so I under-promised and I'm over-delivering here. Uh, the podcast continues to do well in my absence. I think people who are maybe new to the podcast or newer are going back and listening to episodes they haven't listened to previously. And I do apologize uh, if you're in some of the earlier stuff that it's not, as, uh, it's not as well done as stuff that's more recent. I still have plenty of room for improvement. Uh, I tend to be my own harshest critic. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not unaware of the limitations of this podcast. I understand them very well. And others people's perspective has helped me see that, of course. Um, but I think it's a good thing. And the model, again, is for me to read uh, a book uh, written by Soren Kierkegaard and to comment on it. And Soren is the guest. I, um, 
I may get to a point where people want to be on the podcast. Right now, it's very much me asking and me having to uh, reach out over and over again to try to get people to engage uh, as as participants. I don't have the leverage right now to say, hey, this is Bierker online or this is Bierker sending you an email. I'm a, an authority on Kierkegaard. I have a PhD. And, uh, oh, yeah, it's, this is Bierker. I've got to answer this email or this text or you know, uh, this phone call, take it and get back to this guy immediately, otherwise I'm going to lose the opportunity. I don't have that check. I don't know what else to say. Uh, I've made attempts to get people to join, and they're not being um, nasty about it. They're just not engaged. I, I don't want to beg people. If I ask somebody once or twice and they don't get back to me, I'm, I'm done. I move on. I, I'm, not, I'm not unrealistic that way. People have other priorities, and that's okay. Uh, so Soren's going to continue to be the focus. Uh, again, I put a lot of my experience as a school counselor into this. It's the, uh, it's the well from which I draw from. If that's not your thing, if that doesn't make sense in the educational concept, which is really the human, it's kind of a human arena of uh, adolescence in particular, then uh, move on. That's cool. I, uh, I want people to listen willingly and not under a sense of guilt or compulsion. I don't know why you would listen to it if you didn't like it. I don't... I don't eat food I don't like unless it's healthy for me. I don't uh, do things that are painful, that are useless. And if this is not people's thing, I expect them just to move on. And if it is your thing, then uh, certainly weigh in on the, uh, on the platform uh, reviews and the ratings and things like that because that generates, uh, it generates the ability for the platforms to promote the podcast in a sense of it has support. Uh, so it's really cool. Uh, I'm reading this book right now, Excursions with Kierkegaard, uh, uh, Others, Goods, Death, and Final Faith, and it's written by Edward F. Mooney. In a few episodes, I was talking about how my mom's maternal name is Mooney and how that ties into a king in Ireland uh, who was the first king of Ireland or uh, a prominent king in Ireland. Uh, so the Mooney name is, uh, you know, Ireland was a tribe, it's comprised of tribes just like other cultures. And Mooney is a shared heritage that I have. And during St. Patrick's Day, I did a search on the last name Mooney just to learn more about it. And I came across Edward F. Mooney, who is a philosophy professor, at least was, and he may still be, I don't know for sure. I think it's at Syracuse or something. And he's a Kierkegaard scholar, and I, I got a book. I just realized that he had written a book about Kierkegaard. He's an authority on Kierkegaard, so I may reach out to him if he is available and see if he'd be willing to do the podcast. And I thought maybe uh, Mooney here, um, again, his name just came up because it's related to, it's the same last name as mine, and we're distant relatives of some type or another. Um when I was surprised that he had written a book on Kierkegaard, I thought maybe this guy wasn't a Christian. But I'm not sure. In reading the book so far, I'm not sure uh, whether Professor Mooney has theological convictions or not. He doesn't seem to be anti-religious. Uh, I think if you're anti-religious, you'd be anti-Kierkegaard too. And it'd be hard to be a Kierkegaard scholar without at least having a, an appreciation for how Christianity informs Sorn. Whether the individual themselves believes is a different question. That's important. Uh, but he doesn't seem to be anti-faith. And so I originally bought this book because I was trying to understand maybe a, a non-Christian's perspective on Soren Kierkegaard and his writings. So I've been a bit surprised that this book doesn't have that strident uh, position at all. And I'm certainly just in, in the beginning part of the book. I haven't read a ton of it. Uh, but it's um, Excursions with Kierkegaard has this interesting picture of... Uh, 
maybe a river or a lake or something and kind of a dock. It's in a bluish kind of hue. And excursions with Kierkegaard, so it fits the road trip motif. Um, others, goods, death, and final faith. Edward F. Mooney, it's by Bloomsbury Press. I got this the day I was, maybe it was the day before. Uh, I had my mail held on the 28th of March, and I think it arrived the 27th, the day before I was to depart uh, for my road trip across the United States and back. And I was really thankful to get it because I could take it on the road. <laughs> and so I've been reading it a little bit. I haven't spent a lot of time reading. I've spent a lot of time driving, uh, a lot of times hanging out with uh, family and friends, which has been incredibly rich, playing some disc golf, drinking some uh, craft beer, coffee, of course, all those kind of things. Uh, so it's really, really interesting. It's good. Um, road trips are, uh, there's, there's a skill involved with them, and I can't say that I've mastered it, but uh, try to put things back where they belong. Don't leave things on stray tables uh, make sure to put everything back in its location keep as little as possible in the hotel room besides the valuables uh, so you don't have to lug things around and keep things in the car uh, so stuff like that bring some protein bars uh, some other things to snack on on the road uh, so you don't have to stop and spend money at a restaurant which is going to charge you a lot to make to make its bills paid uh, so I've been doing that and uh, some other things I've kind of uh, kind of experienced recently it's going to tie into this book I normally go directly off of Kierkegaard so I'm going to read from this book today actually and it's called The Demise of Care this chapter it's on page uh, 13 and it's at the beginning of the book of course and um, it kind of just goes through uh, at the beginning how Sorn and Socrates and Jesus were very common in this, and probably a lot of ways, but in this one fundamental way is they spoke against the society of which they were a part. And it wasn't because they hated the society, maybe they hated certain things about the society, but they loved people, but they were also critical, or at least very insightful about what the flaws of that society uh, was. Uh, either Athens with Socrates, uh, Soren with Copenhagen and Denmark with the state church, uh, Jesus with Jerusalem and, and lar the larger polity and religious system of, of, of uh, Israel, Judah, uh, uh, Judah, I guess, officially. And they held up a mirror uh, to those societies uh, without uh, being condemning. They were very critical and they wanted people to change because they saw their souls being damaged by sophistry and in uh, Socrates case where people just um, were pests they used uh, trickery to try to win arguments rather than logic and good questioning and truth um, Soren wanted the uh, Copenhagen city uh, citizens to renounce uh, just the uh, the uh, the deadness of their faith, uh, that faith has to be alive, it has to be active, it has to affect how we treat people and how we see God. It's not just punching a clock, going to a service and getting the religious uh, check marks marked. I guess that would be a way I would phrase it. And Jesus, of course, um, went after 
the religious authorities in Jerusalem that secretly behind the scenes were in cahoots with the Romans. And the crucifixion of Jesus demonstrates this. They were enemies, but they had an alliance because they empowered each other. The Romans needed the Jewish religious leaders and political leaders to, uh, to knuckle under uh, Roman authority. And the Romans needed the Jewish leadership, uh, the political and religious authorities, and it was a theocratic uh, country, uh, needed them to provide credibility to the Romans, or at least uh, 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 a uh, grudging, uh, grudging uh, lack of violence or something along those lines. So, you know, the crucifixion of Jesus, which we recently just celebrated, you know, Good Friday, and I was at my buddy's uh, church up in Spokane, St. Aidan's, uh, Carter uh, Stepper Smith is the pastor priest there. He's Anglican. I've come across a lot of Anglicans recently, and I think the Anglican Fellowship has a lot to teach us. It has both tradition and openness to the Spirit, which is a good thing. Unlike Reformed people that see the Spirit as pretty, uh, pretty inert. Uh, but we went to a Maundy uh, Thursday uh, service at his church, and that's when Jesus had his uh, Last Supper with his disciples. Um, but the crucifixion was really a, um, it was a collaborative uh, deal uh, between the Romans and the Jewish leadership. It wasn't Jews in general. Uh, Jesus had many adherents and many followers that were of common uh, lineage, but it was the leadership in particular that cooperated with the Romans to get that deed done. And uh, human cynicism and human evil is real. Uh, Ro the Romans had, uh, you know, law even pertaining to non-citizens that would preclude a lot of what the gospel portrayed. But since when do systems operate according to their own creeds? That doesn't always happen. Anybody who says that, uh, <laughs> that systems always operate by their uh, well-stated intentions and justice and mercy and peace and truth and authority doesn't know human beings very well. Um, there's a system that is the overt system and there's the uh, closeted or behind the scenes of what really happens. And I fortunately had worked in a school that was pretty open about what our priorities were and how we were going to go, go about them. But if one works at a school that has a lot of money and has a lot of uh, what they call a lot of chiefs and not a lot of Indians, even though I know it's probably a pejorative statement these days, uh, everybody wants to be an authority. Everybody wants to be the person in charge. Uh, and if you have that kind of school, you have a very politically charged atmosphere, and you have to be very careful, like as a professional or anybody that interacts with that system, about the uh, the uh, dark of the night, uh, stab in the back type of thing, where you don't know where your enemies are. You don't know who's going after you. They're playing the power game. And there's a, there's a conspiracy or at least a loose coalition against people who are questioning things, uh, maybe for the right reason, maybe not for the right reason. Uh, but I happened to work in a school where the politics were pretty open and pretty understandable and people were pretty straightforward. I appreciated that because I knew what I was dealing with. It wasn't subterfuge. But a lot happened in the crucifixion of Jesus where the Jews and the Romans didn't follow their own stated policy. And also with the thieves on the cross and all that kind of stuff. Again, people don't know human nature. They don't know how they can bend systems to do uh, evil things under the guise of uh, trying to be uh, above board. Um, 
if I was going to say there's something, there's a story of humanity about that, that's, that's one of the stories. So don't be naive. Don't be naive about human nature. Uh, we have the image of God in us, but we also have a lot of wickedness and a lot of evil. And those are strong words, and Soren doesn't, doesn't avoid them. Uh, we have a lot of that in us. And I was listening to a synchristic uh, theology professor at Union last night on a podcast, and um, very thoughtful. He, he's of Indian descent, of like Hindu uh, descent, but he's Indian, but he was Christian. So um, the gospel uh, was preached in India in the first century, and there are Christians that can trace their conversions through their culture back to the first century through uh, one of the disciples. I forget who the disciple is. I think it's Thomas. Yeah, Thomas was the one that went to India, and I think he went to southern India. This is what the, uh, it's not the Bible, but it's like tradition. But there are Christians in India that have been Christians since the first century in terms of their culture, that area, that lineage, those ancestors. And so this individual is, is of Indian descent, not Hindu, but appreciative of Hinduism and Buddhism, which are related, of course. Uh, but that teaches at Union, I think, and Union's pretty liberal. And this guy was very compelling, a very thoughtful dude. He wasn't a typical uh, liberal that's like bashing the gospel. This guy believes in Jesus, believes in Jesus being the Son of God. But he was also synchristic and then he's seeing that God's um, truth embeds itself in other religions. And I don't debate that. I think that's, I think that's actually accurate. But we have to wa watch um, putting like Hinduism and Buddhism allied with Christianity. There's a line there. Um, and he was using like the idea of Logos, that Logos is how Christ is described by the Apostle John in the in the uh, book of John, one, one of the Gospels. And John is different than Luke, uh, Matthew, and Mark. Those are called the synoptic because they tend to see that with the same eye, the optic word. John's really written in a much different style. It's much more intellectual. It's much more theological. gets into the Trinity a lot. Uh, but the Logos, uh, this uh, professor was asserting, is, is universal. It goes across culture. It goes across uh, the land. And uh, there's truth in that. Uh, in the light of Jesus, the Logos uh, reflects itself in cultures to some degree, uh, one or another. And that is a true statement. The danger is he neglected to mention that men love the darkness rather than the light. That's in John 2. So if you're going to quote the Logos, you have to put that other part into it, that human nature is, uh, is broken. I don't know what else to say. It's broken. Uh, there was a guy here recently in uh, Roseville who was out for a walk with his wife in a local park that was taken hostage by some guy that was wanted for murder. And the, the murder had taken place a while back. And the police were serving a warrant on this guy at a dog park, of all places, which is a very public environment. And so the guy ran or took off and took a couple hostage, and he put a bullet in the dude's head, just an innocent bystander. And I was out playing disc golf yesterday in Roseville. I'm like, you know, dumb stuff or evil stuff can happen out of the blue. Um, you know, the person didn't deserve that conclusion. He was taken hostage as, as a way for this guy to try to get away from the police. Winds up uh, losing his life. Um, so human wickedness is real. It is real. And it's not just real with uh, like deranged individuals. It's in all of us to one degree or another. Um, we can't feed, can't feed that. We have to come clean before God. So Soren uh, was, in a sense, crucified by Copenhagen. They laughed at him. They mocked him. 
uh, they, and the, with the encouragement of the Corsair, the magazine, he was caricatured. His physical ailments were uh, accentuated in the illustrations, and he was turned into an object of derision. And uh, I think Soren, in the end, would say, "You're not laughing at me. You're laughing at my. You're laughing at yourself in a cruel way, and you're laughing at God. And God is going to judge you. Uh, he's going to judge your uh, your cruelty and your lack of compassion." Uh, so I think he wept for them uh, more than he wept for himself. Uh, now he probably did that impurely. Now Jesus, when he wept for wept for Jerusalem, was a pure was a pure sorrow when he said that uh, I have longed to gather you like the chicks the, the hen tries to gather the chicks, but you were you were not willing. The chicks, uh, you know, the, the uh, example that Jesus uses, uh, like a uh, hen trying to gather her chicks in the midst of a storm or a fire and protect the chicks with the with her wings, and the chicks were unwilling to be protected. And um, Jesus weeps for them, and he tells the women of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, and what's going to come upon you within 40 years, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. So that loose coalition, that uneasy cooperation, that Cold War agreement that the Jew, Jewish leadership and the, um, the Romans had fell apart in 40 years, and uh, Jerusalem was torn asunder. If you ever want to read what that looked like, uh, read the accounts of uh, Josephus and his, I think, in his book *The Antiquities* or something. We uh, underestimate how how horrible it was uh, when the Romans dished out the uh, punishment uh, on 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 the Jewish nation in AD 70, and Jesus predicted predicted it, and it happened. So anyone who wants to pr- promote the Jewish uh, the Jewish position as the salvation of the world, you know, like the Jews themselves are the community that teaches the world how to act justly, how to love mercy. Uh, they don't have a very good understanding of human sinfulness. Um, both Jew and Gentile are condemned under the law. The law is good. The ethical law is expressed by the Ten Commandments. But we fall short, and we must throw ourselves upon the mercy and grace of God through Christ. Uh, there is no other way. There is no other way. You cannot keep the law. The law is good, but you can't keep it. You may acknowledge it, you may appreciate it, you may see its value. However, <laughs> we can't keep the law. That was the uh, the point of the gospel. All right. So I've been in some situations recently, and this is going to tie into today's reading, which I'm going to do right now. But I'll tell the stories after I read this. This uh, chapter um, section is called Demise of Care, and it's under the, the chapter of subjectivity. And we've talked about subjectivity before that Soren's use of the word subjectivity does not mean that all truth, um, everybody's truth is equal. And he doesn't believe that. He believes in revelation. He believes in the scriptures. So by its very implication, it can't mean what we think it means. Subjectivity doesn't mean that one person says it's black, <clears throat> the other person says it white is white, and they're both correct. Uh, that's not the case. What subjective, subjectivity means to Soren, and in several different ways, is one thing is that we must take the truth and internalize it. We must act upon it enough we must believe it enough to act on it if that makes um, if that's logical we have to act on the truth we can't just say that we should love our enemies we need to love our enemies we uh, should just say you shouldn't steal we, we we should not steal you know like there's an active nature of the faith so the subject is always critical in terms of the theological truth is that we have to we have to internalize it like we would a meal or a drink we must take it in and exude it through our, through our attitudes and our behaviors. And that's not mechanistic. That's doing things for the right reasons. And I always felt like working with kids. If you cared about the kids, you would generally do the right thing. It doesn't mean you couldn't improve. 
It didn't mean I didn't make mistakes. It just meant as if my intent was to help the child, the teenager, I would typically do the right thing, and I would seek out the answers to help that kid. And I would say as a warning, if you're in the pastoral ministries or you're, you're a helper, you're in a, work in a school as a teacher or a counselor, and you start to feel bitterness, you start to feel that lack of doing what's best for the children, you start to think about yourself too much and how much you're hurting, you must leave the profession. I don't care what your pension is. I don't care what you're going to damage yourself. You're going to damage the children. Burnout is a sign that something is wrong. It doesn't mean you're at fault. It just means the combination of you as an individual and the system are not in gear anymore. And the kids are going to get caught in those gears. You're going to get caught in them too. So the demise of care. I'm just going to read it. Subjectivity and what matters. Kierkegaard's subjectivity is tied to my sense that I care for things that matter. I am summoned and struck by things that make demands on my responsiveness. To be subject is to be summoned, struck, and responsive. Subjectivity is not an epistemological concept focused on how I know this or that, nor does it name a kind of propositional truth. Okay, so he's kind of explicating the idea of subjectivity here. <clears throat> it is a broadly moral, existential, and experiential concept. One has more or less subjectivity as one takes more or less responsibility for one's life or is more or less affectively and morally responsive to others and one's ideals or is more or less subject, uh, subject to passions, benevolent or malevolent. It is an openness to be affected by, subject to, and responsive to interventions and pleas, calls and demands, whether moral, religious, or aesthetic. Kierkegaard undoes a raw Cartesian isolationism. This is from Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. It's very individualistic and very logical, not very emotional. Uh, Cartesian isolationism by evoking a porous interiority and facing a simple request, another's words enter my socially tuned consciousness. I am not alone. Kierkegaard has angst, care, and mood circuit into the world and return back to the self. In a long passage from the concluding unscientific postscript, Johannes Climacus overhears a man at a gravesite grieving a son, a lost son. Mood travels from the stranger over there to enter an upset Climacus, who rediscovers it permeating the heavens and whispering trees. Mood is both outside and inside in seamless animations. When Heidegger uh, places us primordially always ready in the world, he is taking a page from Kierkegaard. Emerson will say a person is place. Person and place are mutually articulate. In class, I am, in a sense, my classroom. Of course, Kierkegaard and his pseudonym, uh, Johannes Climacus, speak approvingly of inwardness, which sounds alarmingly Cartesian, but inwardness is an outward-flowing wholeheartedness uh, or cordiality. It is not a Cartesian screen of consciousness uh, on which uh, disembodied images float, images that are only conjecturally connected to an outer world. We are implicated, implicated in a world that already implicates us. A loving parent faces a loved child. A desperate soul faces desperate straits. Furthermore, when Kierkegaard talks of inwardness, 
the point is less about something, a metaphysical, a metaphysical region, than it is an earnest plea that I enact uh, the truth of wholehearted inner, inner, inner responses. I am asked, as it were, to bring wholeheartedness into the world under the auspices of innerness. There is a move. Uh, there is no move towards self-enclosure or ascetic withdrawal. Uh, Kierkegaard laments a loss of subjectivity. He sees that one can lose care for self and others, lose care for one's God, one's neighbor, and one's world, lose a sense that one's time and place matter, and that one matters to oneself. Cartesian subjectivity is tied to the epistemological certainty that I think Kierkegaard subjectively is tied uh, to broadly moral uh, religious convictions I can muster. Uh, I'm not sure I read that entirely correctly, or not, in the face of objective uncertainty. It is tied to whatever cares summons me or makes demands on me or call me to become who I am. It is a sense uh, that can wax and wane, a passion that will run full tilt or die a trickling death. A suffering child pleads for my response, calls for my responsiveness, my subjectivity, asks for help or compassion. To record this dispassionately, to make a mental note, a child's voice was heard asking, and to feel or do nothing in response would be to stand in good stead as an objective observer. Writing down my observation, the result could be passable as true to the facts, though it would still be, I suspect, true uh, to only a stripped-down and cruel, even alien view of the facts. To, only, to be only an objective observer in this uh, circumstance, uh, however, would be to stand utterly false to what I could and should be, false to my recognition that I hear a call to respond from my heart. It simply follows then, if the higher value of any one can aspire to is being morally, religiously, humanely responsive, then truth, our highest, highest value, is subjectivity. Uh, I could go on and read more and more. I'm just afraid I'm not going to be able to tie this into some kind of uh, conclusion in the 11 minutes I have remaining. Uh, but you got to get a sense of what Mooney, Professor Mooney, is writing towards, that subjectivity almost demands a response. And it's based on the moral, religious call that people have for, to care for one another. And it does not mean that we just openly affirm what people say and do. That's not care in my book. That's taking the easy way out. If God has given us truth and he tells us the truth about ourselves and others, we have a, we have a, a need and a duty to respond to that in a way that has integrity. We're not to twist the scriptures and make them what they are not. We're not to say that all religions are equal. Uh, they're all to God. They all go to God in the same way. They do not. Uh, Jesus' death proves that the Christian message is unique, um, that it, it, it is a revelation from God himself in terms of how to restore relationships with himself and also, also with God. I just want to mention a few things in conclusion here in terms of subjectivity. I uh, I was at a brewery recently, and I'm not going to tell too much details, but on Easter Day I was at a brewery, and there was an older guy, probably about my age, maybe a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger, was sitting on the corner of the bar of this well-known craft brewery, and they have a restaurant there, it's not just a brewery, it's not just a place to get beer, but they have good food. And there were a couple staff members that were off off the clock uh, enjoying a beer, two young women, and they were talking. And they were very kind and very nice people. At least one was. I could hear her better than the other one. Uh, but this other individual was sitting on the other side of this 
this, these two women, these two young women, and he was sitting on the corner of the bar, which means that when people came in to pick up like food to go, or when they came into the brewery, they had to kind of pass this, um, this kind of corner. And anybody that goes to a bar on Easter day, or goes to a craft brewery, mm, probably doesn't have super strong relational connections. Uh, I think that's true about me. I mean, I, I was in Portland a few years back on Christmas day at a bar. <laughs> And I called it like the land of broken toys because who goes to a bar on Christmas? Those are people that are, you know, somewhat alienated from culture and their families and whatever. Um, and I could tell this guy was lonely. And I'm lonely too in a way, but I, I have the confidence of Christ in me. I, I don't expect people to uh, to always see me or to, to respond to me. I'm an observer and I, I try to be sensitive in terms of just seeing things. And this guy was interacting with these two women, and it was clear that he wanted affirmation, he wanted conversation, and the one woman that was sitting close to me was so kind to him, but I could tell, like, the guy was, um, because of his need, he was kind of invasive, if that makes sense. He was barging in on the conversation, not in a rude way, but he was trying to participate, and the kind of subtle vibe I was getting is that the couple, these two women just wanted to chat among themselves. Uh, and then the guy would talk to people coming to pick up food. And, and I just had empathy for the guy because I'm like him. I'm not, I'm not any different, I guess, in a way. And I just knew that he was looking for something. And then being older with young women, it has like sexual overtones. If you're trying to be friendly, it comes across being kind of creepy. And I didn't pick up any of those vibes for him. It doesn't look like he was looking to, you know, have a one night stand with anybody or anything like that. He seemed to be genuinely just wanted human companionship. And, um, it was just an interesting observation. And, uh, I just kind of kept to myself and I talked a little bit to the bartender and, um, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty content to be alone. I don't know. I, I see I'm with people, but I'm also with myself a lot and I, I can do both pretty well. Uh, I love people. I love being around people. And I've had a lot of relational richness on this trip. I mean, even though I've had very long drives uh, between points of uh, arrival and departure, I've also like really connected with my family in Minnesota and friends in Chicago and uh, just strangers at different places. And uh, I don't want to neglect any, but my brother in Pittsburgh and friends in Chicago, I'll just do kind of as the trip has progressed. Indianapolis with my cousin and their family, uh, and then my uh, mom's sister and her husband. I didn't know him real well. I uh, got, got to know him better. That was Indianapolis. And then in Missoula, just going back to Missoula, I'd been there 12 years ago and just feeling the beauty of that town. It was very wintry and it was snowy, and people there are friendly. And then going to uh, Spokane and hanging out with my friend Carter and going to a craft brewery and playing some disc golf with his son the next day at a local course. It was super fun. And then my buddy, uh, my buddy Drew, and we went up to a Benedictine monastery that brews a beer and had some wonderful beer. And, uh, man, the place was like a sacred space. It's on the top of this, this mountain, kind of, and there's a valley below, and it's so green. And then being here in, uh, in Sacramento area in Roseville uh, with my buddy Josh that I go back with uh, 35, 40 years. We were involved in a ministry back in Westchester, Pennsylvania called Church Shock, which was the, um, 
the most wonderful combination of creative people that I've ever known in my life. And I've been a lot around, around a lot of talented people, but we did kind of a, a Christian version of Saturday Night Live for teenagers where we presented the gospel. We did it through skits and music. And it wasn't some, some backwash type of opportunity. These people were super talented. And I wrote a couple of, a couple of skits. Uh, I remember Rambo Prayer Warrior was one and uh, The Bishop of Oz. I could even do part of the rap for you if I wanted to. Dorothy, Dorothy is chilling in her trailer park condo, hanging out with Dodo, feeling totally mondo. Then a giant tornado rips through the place, sending the house, the dog, and Dorothy into space. After a brief layover in O'Hare and a pleasant flight, they land down in Oz as day is becoming night. As they landed, they crushed an intellectual beast. It was wicked Carl Pagan, the secular humanist of the East. Billions and billions of munchkins appeared on the scene. Wicked Carl Pagan dead wasn't so mean. So I wrote that rap for it. It goes on and on. It's, it doesn't. It, it kind of loses its steam after a while, but I had two kids at my reform school. I worked through the rap. One kid was real big. Um, named Dietrich, and he was the bebop guy, and I had my, my uh, MC uh, Kelsey, uh, Kelsey Boston, do the rap itself, and he froze underneath the spotlight for the first 10 seconds, and he kicked into it. I wasn't sure if Kelsey was going to be able to pull it off. I remember Dietrich was sitting in the back of my car, and he was a big dude from uh, Detroit or something, almost as big as I am, about 6'8", also, and my car was was buckling under the weight of him in the back seat, so I had a uh, crappy Dodge Charger. Another thing that happened, which was interesting, I was at a coffee shop recently, and I only learned this in retrospect. Uh, there was an older guy there that was kind of interacting with, with some teenagers who were off of school because of Easter break or spring break or something. I wouldn't call it Easter break anymore. It's too, uh, too religious, but spring break. And he was interacting with these teenagers, and they were kind of mocking him, and he was kind of busting them. And it was the, the interaction was making me uncomfortable. And I didn't know at the time, but the guy, the older man, uh, is autistic. But he was walking up and planking on the piano. He was reading uh, portions of like, a book that he's written. And he was saying things to the teenagers, and they were saying things back to him that were snarky and mean. And he was saying like um, things back to the kids that was kind of off. And I couldn't quite put my finger on what was going on. And I didn't want to intervene. And there was a girl there that I think was high out of her mind. I think she had been smoking some weed or something because she was alternately crying and laughing. And I wasn't sure if she was okay. And I, I kind of keep my cards pretty closely to my chest when I'm in situations. I don't reveal that I know kids really well and I know what they're doing. And I, I, I'm a lot more hip than they realize. I'm on to them. And they, they like to act like they, they know better. <laughs> it's a trait of teenagers sometimes. But I'm watching this interaction between this guy that I find out later is like a got Asperger's or something. And the kids are being cruel to him and being smart-alecky, and especially one kid, and he's kind of throwing stuff back at them, kind of indirectly, but also kind of in an adversarial manner. And I kind of grieve for the interaction, and I, I don't want to stick myself in the middle of it and try to mediate it, you know. But I was just like, you know, there, there's just kind of a cultural vibe right now where it's, it's acceptable to be kind of cruel and mean to each other. And teenagers will do that, I know that, and it's nothing new, but... It's kind of the sanction of our, our community. Like, there's so much snark in our culture. Everybody wants to be a smartass. Everybody wants to be snarky. Everybody wants to have a quick comeback. Uh, so it kind of broke my heart. And um, I didn't interact with it because I wasn't sure how to do it. Um, yesterday, my buddy Josh took me to a bridge, which is nearby. 
and it's like 900 900 miles, that's ridiculous, 900 feet above a gorge that has a river on it, and I forget the name of the bridge, it's not important, but it's right close here, it's in Auburn, and a Van Diesel film was filmed there where a car goes off this bridge, and Van Diesel, like, parachutes from the car, it's a red car, and crashes below, but this is the hot spot for suicides in, in the Roseville, Auburn area that people jump off of this bridge, even though the gate's very, very high. You can climb over it and jump. And by the time you get over it and you jump and you hit the ground, you're dead. Because uh, it's about 800, 900 feet uh, up in the air. It's in this gorge. They were going to build a dam there. Uh, so they built the bridge high enough to be above the lake that was going to be created by damming this, uh, this river. But it was going to have a tremendous ecological impact if they did it, so the environmentalists stopped it, either for good or for bad. Uh, but the result is this bridge is way up in the air, and people are about the size of ants below walking on trails and stuff. And there's all these notes and all these uh, kind of miniature signs that are laminated about like who to call in case you have a suicide ideation that you're going to kill yourself or you know, that you're important, that you're enough. and all that. It's like affirmations um, on this bridge to try to keep people from stopping and jumping. And I, I just imagine the pain somebody must be in to leap off a bridge that's almost a 1,000 feet in the air uh, to their uh, soon-to-be death in a very painful way. Um, and it just gave me empathy again. And again, we shouldn't become so hard to the world that we don't feel others' pains, like Soren was talking about here, as mentioned in, by this author, is that we could be affected by a man being at the gravesite and loss of his son. You know, that should touch us. We should feel the pain that person's going through. That That's what subjectivity means. It means to suffer with other people willingly. And to feel what they feel and to understand, to the degree that we can, the reality of what they're going through. And I have friends right now, good friends, uh, they're going through a horrible medical situation that's going to lead to the eventual, and it's fairly, fairly soon, uh, passing away of, of, one, of the, one, of the, one of the people in, the, in this couple. And they're faithful Christians and have been for years and been an inspiration to many because of their faithfulness. And she's, she's, in, she's, in, a, she's in a sad way and very, very sick and she's in hospice and she's going to pass and she leaves behind three grown kids, uh, teenagers or young adults, and a grieving husband. So Christians suffer too. God has not spared us. Uh, the gospel means that the suffering of the world is our own suffering. And it's very easy when we go through suffering to say, well, I have had my share. I don't need to extend it to others. I don't need to worry about people that jump off of bridges or I don't have to be concerned about the individual who's being kind of um, made fun of by teenagers at a, at a coffee shop or the individual who's lonely that's sitting on a corner of a bar that's trying to reach out because he needs human companionship. It's easy to be cynical and it's easy to be um, critical rather than saying, you know, that person and I are so similar. We're so similar. I could be that person jumping off a bridge if my life had been different. Well, it doesn't mean I wouldn't have done it when I was younger. I could have done it because I certainly was suicidal. I just I was literally afraid that I couldn't kill myself well when I was a teenager and young adult, I'll try to kill myself and just mess it up. I'm such a failure, I can't even do that right. Um, and it wasn't because I was depressed in one way in an abnormal sense. I think I was reacting to the world that I had and the heartache that it was real for me. It wasn't made up. It wasn't just in my head. It was the things I'd experienced. 
So my passion for this podcast, and my buddy Josh is an Anglican priest. He's encouraged me. He says, you should be a priest, man. And I'm like, no, I can't see myself as a priest. But I do see myself as uh, somebody who has philosophical and perhaps counselor orientation, where I like to put out goodness into the world and encourage people to pursue the truth and the love and the grace and the mercy and the peace that comes through God. It's real. I don't understand why God allows evil to have its sway in the world. I don't understand it sometimes. I don't try to make sense of it because uh, I'm just limited. I can't figure it all out. And you know, there's also a part of faith that we're just not going to understand. We can we can see the end game though that uh, it ends in you you catastrophe. You catastrophe is a Tolkien word that everything ends in joy, despite the tragedy along the way and the trip. Uh, that God is going to. Uh, is going to redeem the world. He's going to redeem the universe. He's going to wipe the tears from our eyes. And I pray if you are a person that has heartache and you have, you know, you have unreconciled um, sorrow, is uh, reach out to Christ. He's well acquainted with sorrow. Uh, he's well acquainted with it, and uh, he's with us. He suffers with us. I read recently that Jesus is the only person in heaven right now that has a human body, and that is a fact. I don't understand it because he can go through walls, he can show his wounds, he can get behind locked doors, he can materialize and dematerialize. So there's something going on that's very Star Trek-y that I don't get. Uh, but God can be with us in the midst of all those heartaches. And uh, don't give up if you're in that situation. Uh, reach out, find help, ask for help. Reach out to me. Last name is Birkegaard. You can find me on all the socials. Uh, get some get some assistance. Uh, we care for you. I wouldn't do this podcast if I didn't care for people. I want to mention one last thing before I move on here. I have to go over to my travel bag, so uh, pardon the noise as I do so. Uh, a friend of mine owns that coffee shop, and he uh, provided me two bags of coffee yesterday. And it's from the fig tree. So this is in Roseville, California. Here are the beans. Uh, it's an Ethiopia light. It's a whole bean. He didn't grind it because I have a grinder with me. Fig Tree Coffee Art Music Lounge. It's in Roseville, California. And he, uh, he and his wife have gone through tremendous uh, difficulties in keeping this coffee shop open. A lot of bureaucratic nonsense. A lot of uh, issues with the landlord in the previous location. An enormous amount of money they spent on the previous location that kind of went out the window. And they're trying to build the uh, the wholesale uh, side of this, or the uh, at least the mail order coffee side of this. So, uh, if you like good coffee, the beans are a little bit more expensive, but they're roasted by somebody who was trained by one of the great coffee personalities in the history of the world, Pete's. Uh, uh, last name was Pete, and uh, this guy doesn't roast like Pete's does. He roasts a little bit more according to what the bean desires, what the bean needs. So it could be light roast or dark roast and things like that. So reach out to, on their website and order some coffee. Uh, I, I kind of paid for the coffee because he needed, my buddy needed <laughs> my credit card yesterday, put gas in his car because his credit cards weren't working for some reason. I think it was because of some solar flare issues. He was saying that my credit cards have been messed up in California. So he gave me a couple bags of coffee. He was going to probably give them to me anyway for free. Uh, but I, I said, just give me enough coffee to pay for the gas that I put in your car. Because uh, my credit card's bought a lot of gas recently, so it's more than capable. And one last thing before I conclude. Uh, <laughs> got together for sushi yesterday with Josh, my buddy, and a musician by the name of Michael Rowe. 
uh, who's the lead guitarist and singer for the band The 77s. But I've gone through various lineup changes over the year, years uh, since the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. But Mike's still at it. He still makes music and still has the band called The 77s. And we met for lunch yesterday at a really good Japanese restaurant and had a bunch of sushi and this really interesting drink that had an oyster in it and a sake and some other interesting ingredients. We all did a shot of it. I didn't drink too much, but that was it. And that was a dream come true to get together with Mike because his music's been very influential. He and his bandmates produced music that as an early Christian I could relate to because it was good enough to qualify as stuff that I had already been listening to, like Led Zeppelin or The Beatles or Jimi Hendrix. It was of that quality. It wasn't exactly the same, but it was of that genre in that, in that area. And they wrote with a Christian sensibility and a Christian message. And it wasn't always overt, but it came across in their lyrics that they were deep and they were meaningful. And I was told Mike yesterday how much his music had meant to me. And he hears that from a decent amount of people. The 77s almost made it big. Uh, they were on Island Records. That was the label that had signed uh, U2. And U2's Joshua Tree was released. And caught fire in the world and all the other bands were kind of left behind because Ireland didn't have the resources to promote all these different bands at the same time. U2 became so big that they overshadowed the 77s and every other band on that, on that, on that label. And so that was the 77s big shot. Michael reflected yesterday that he's thankful. It took a lot of years for him to see this, but that God protected him maybe in a way from fame and, and all that, all that, leads to because in the end you know you see what happens to bands that make it and some of the consequences even though the world would applaud and the, and the crowds would be massive and the money is a lot and the fame and the adulation you know a lot of ways it's very very harmful to people and you don't know what you're going to become in the face of success and uh, look at Jimi Hendrix you know had the world uh the world has his audience, and it wasn't enough to protect him from the self-destruction inside of him. Um, and I was at the uh, Museum for Popular Culture up in Seattle, and I got to see a lot of Hendrix's original um, lyric sheets that he wrote, and a lot of his guitar equipment, and musical equipment, and soundboards, and outfits. Uh, it originally was started as a museum dedicated solely to um, Jimi Hendrix, but it became broader than that. So it has like major exhibitions from Hendrix, Nirvana and um, Pearl Jam, which all came from Seattle. And there's other stuff too, but more than 50% of it's those three bands. And then there's like Star Trek stuff and there's other cultural influences and things like that. But you can tell that the Hendrix DNA in that museum is strong. And it was very important for me to go see it because it's uh, the Hendrix exhibition is much more in detail than what's at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland which is nice and which is brought much broader than the uh, museum in Seattle. So I was in Seattle, didn't know anybody there, uh, but had some Nepalese coffee, which was great. And, um, okay. So hopefully that's uh, beneficial. Again, I wasn't sure I was going to do this on the road. Uh, I'll see you probably two weeks. I can't imagine I'll be doing this uh, next week, but maybe not even two weeks, but in two weeks I'm getting close to the, the trip ending. And then the following Wednesday, I should be back on track at least. So, Hope everybody's well. Um, pray for me that I would continue to have safety and be protected from my own stupidity and continue to reach out and serve and to build friendships with uh, people that I haven't seen recently. I'm not going to see family for quite some time, maybe in North Carolina. My mom and her boyfriend are going to be there at a musical festival, so I may go to Asheville, outside of Asheville, and see them for half a day or something. 
So this is a little bit longer than usual, but hope everybody's well and be well.